welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. I'm your host, Tracy Siska. I'm also executive director of the Chicago Justice Project. You can find out more about our day work or my day job at chicagojustice.org. And if you want to get involved in our work, go to cjpnation.org and get involved in crowdsource research projects, social media advocacy, public policy advocacy, fundraising, any way you want. It's an opportunity for all interest at cjpnation.org. Okay, today we're talking with, uh, we have an interview featuring Professor Todd Clear from Rutgers University discussing gun violence increases in America and what is potentially a slide back to policies we know don't work. And then we're also going to talk, come back after the interview and talk about a really, really stupid story from WGN Television News about gun recoveries and those numbers being manipulated by the CPD. Spoiler, they always have been. So first, we're going to feature our interview with Professor Todd Clare. He He's from Rutgers University. He's a professor in the School of Criminal Justice. He's also served previously as a provost of the university, and before that, the dean of the School of Criminal Justice. Claire has also had professorships at John Jay College Criminal Justice, where he held the rank of distinguished professor. Florida State University, where he's associate professor, also associate dean of the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice, and Ball State University. Clear also was the previous president of the American Society of Criminology, the, Ameri the Academy of Criminal Justice Sciences, and the Association of Doctoral Programs in Criminology and Criminal Justice. So I sit down today with Professor Clear to discuss the causes of the uptick in gun violence in many cities across America, as well as the creeping slide towards regressive policies that we know through research don't work. If you're in Chicago, you definitely know what I'm talking about. If you're in pretty much any major city, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, I'll be back after the interview to discuss the interview and quickly discuss one of the stupidest reports you'll see on gun violence in Chicago all year. Todd Clear, thank you so much for uh, jumping on our podcast today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Okay, so what I would say is being at least one of the leading criminologists in this country, that you are here, I have a question for you. And this has bothered me. I think one of the issues that's really bothered me during the pandemic is we lack context around crime and violence issues. If you were sitting in your department in Rutgers, let's say three years ago, so um, sometime early 2019, and someone tells you, one of your colleagues brings up, hey guys, what do you think would happen if a worldwide pandemic hit that killed millions of people all over, the country, all over the world, hundreds of thousands in the US, and brought apart unparalleled uh, disruption in health security, job security, and housing security to every place in this country, let alone all the urban areas. What would have been your prediction for what was gonna happen to gun violence in the country? That's a, such a great question. I probably would have been befuddled by it because um, uh, gun violence comes about as a result of two different issues in the U.S. One is the number of guns we have. And uh, so I, if I'd been a smart person, I would have asked, so what has happened to gun purchasing in the time just before that and gun availability during that time period? Uh, and then the second thing that produces gun violence is instability at the uh, community level and um, in, in small uh, locations. And I would have asked what what would have been the kind of result of um, instability in, in cultural relationships and community relationships at the neighborhood level. Uh, so, and if you'd told me 
Well, so there's going to be a, just a huge increase in gun purchasing just before this happened. In fact, in the in, in from about uh, uh, 15, 2015 on, uh, gun sales just uh, skyrocketed, uh, and and um, and community relationships will dis will uh, disintegrate. That I would say, wow, we're going to see some violence. <laughs> I would have been right, I guess. Right, and it just. It's amazing to me, um, and we'll talk about local news later because it really bugs me. I guess we'll get into a little bit here. So, you know, when, especially in Chicago, but in urban centers, you see the reporting on crime and violence, gun violence, carjacking increases as a localized issue only. And despite the fact that it's an, in spread across many, if not most of the urban areas in, in the country, and if you, the smaller the city, the higher the per capita rates, um, so like in Chicago, everyone's like, we're the worst at everything. Crime is violence is the worst is all, all the policies are horrible that you're doing. It's all of your policy problems. Mayor and superintendent of the police fix this. Now have that magic wand. Um, what kind of impact do you think the day in and day out reporting that is so localized and doesn't look nationally at a problem has on our ability to solve the problem? Well, so, um, so our inability to think uh, in the longer term or to think comparatively really makes us have myopic uh, uh, thoughts about, about crime policy. And every place in the U.S. right now is the worst it's ever been. And, you know, uh, uh, defund the police has um, uh, uh, created chaos and on and on and on. When um, the story's uh, much more nuanced, um, so crime started going down in the, in the early 1990s and to everyone's surprise, continued going down for a generation. Um, and the drop in crime was uh, so, um, uh, uh, so continual uh, and everybody kept predicting, well, this is, going to, this is going to end sometime. I mean, it can't go down to zero, obviously. It uh, started at a pretty high place. Um, and we, I think we got used to, uh, us criminologists got used to this idea that, that uh, the country's becoming safer. And if anybody really had to look at their belly button and think about this, they would have said, you know, it's not gonna be permanent. We're not looking at a permanent continual and year after year drop in crime. So the first thing is that we've had this generation long improvement in public safety, particularly in places like uh, Chicago and even violence, uh, homicide and assault and, hom and uh, aggravated assault, even those measures, even though they're, people think of them as high, they've been dropping as well for a generation. <clears throat> so it's gonna stop sometime. Now, um, the pandemic, I think is a pretty important uh, um, uh, criminal justice moment uh, in the way it disrupts everything. So, but, um, but if we had thought, you know, we're going to live through for the rest of our lives, and, uh, you know, an era of uh, continual year and year after year dropping crime, we would have been kidding ourselves. So that was the, that's the first thing I would say. Uh, the second is that this uh, violence, they call it a spike, is not a general crime spike. So ironically, some types of crime dropped precipitously during the pandemic, much more than they had in the previous. A decade, and uh, but very specific types of violence 
um, the kinds of assaults that lead to death uh, and uh, some kinds of armed crime, gun-related crime, increased and increased rapidly and very uh, in, in specific places, but not everywhere. Some cities had an increase, some cities had a big increase, some cities had no increase. And, um, uh, and in many places, this increase was short-lived and they, it started dropping back to normal levels. And so the story really isn't, we don't know the story yet. We're in the middle of the story. We're trying to tell the story without knowing the, A, what the end of the story is and B, actually what is actually happening now. We don't know if it's going up or going down now. It's doing both in different places. Uh, and it's very specific to, uh, to interpersonal violence. It's not a general crime problem. So I don't know if that's responsive to your question, but the idea that we live our lives in relation to what happened yesterday makes us pretty ignorant about what's been happening for a long period of time. Right, and that was... I say couldn't, I, didn't, I don't mean couldn't, but the point is that the kind of drop that we were seeing here, we, they were seeing in other places in Europe and, and in other countries around the world. Something culturally was going on and, um, and I think the pandemic affects culture in very um, uh, currently undetermined ways. Uh, and crime certainly responds to that. Right. I would tell everyone, um, my family and friends, they go, whenever you hear someone say they know exactly what happened in the 90s and 2000s and why it happened, don't believe them. Because our, some of our brightest minds in this field don't know. And everyone, every, excuse my language, but every whore out there is going to take credit for it because that's what they're, that, that's an opportunity. Um, so don't believe them. We don't know what happened. Um, okay. There's an old, there's an old parole uh, uh, trick. So uh, uh, the sage uh, person uh, says to the newbie, you know, I have an in with the parole board. I, you're going with the parole board uh, t uh, tomorrow. If you give me uh, uh, two uh, cartons of cigarettes, I'll see what I can do with the parole board. And, and I guarantee you that if it doesn't work, I'll give you your cartons back, <laughs> you know? And so, and this guy doesn't do anything with the parole board. If the parole board says, yes, keeps the cartons. If the parole board says, no, so, so sorry, I couldn't do it this time. Here's your cartons back. It's an old, <laughs> it's an old game. It's, but this is kind of a version of that. You know, if crime goes down, I'm responsible, but man, if crime goes up, it's, I, I have no idea what we're, you know, we're going to have to do That's, something. Right. Gangs. Right. And, and they're not that they're not the pro part of the problem, but it, it seems anyways, let's not go down that path too far. All right. I want to turn to, um, a quote from the uh, op-ed you co-wrote a while back in, I think, November um, called for the crime report, report called The Danger of the Return to Crime Alarmism. Oh, boy, does Chicago have that in, in spades. Um, yeah, I mean, the part of the issue with Chicago is, oh, my God, some of the carjackings and, and gun violence um, um, bled over to white areas of the city. And God forbid that happen. If it would just stay in those other communities, it'd be okay. Okay, so the quote is, there's growing evidence in cities where homicides rate turned markedly up. The increase is slow, yet the erroneous belief that crime in general is up will fuel public support for policies of the past that filled prisons, worsened economic and racial inequalities, and did little to reduce crime. So can you give us an idea what types of policies are you talking about there, or you and your authors talking about there? Well, I think you can wrap it all up under the general title, Get Tough. Uh, you know, um, the uh, so the same uh, politician who took responsibility for uh, the great uh, drop in crime uh, is now feeling responsible for doing something about crime. And they and there seems to be only 
in many political lines, there seems to be only, you know, sort of one button to push and that is the get tough button. Um, so, uh, you know, so they're, so it's easy to blame uh, left-wingers who want to defund the police and um, uh, judges who want, uh, pro, uh, uh, namby-pamby prosecutors who will, who are looking the other way while people are getting away with uh, murder kind of thing. And, and so these policies involve increasing um, the police presence in neighborhoods, uh, but, but a, mil a, a militaristic version of the police presence in neighborhoods, uh, increasing this, the number of people who go to prison and increasing the length of stay in prison. That's the, that's the recipe from the um, you know, 1980s that uh, gave us so many uh, people in prison but didn't have much to do with the crime rate that was increased from the 60s through the 90s. In, in Illinois, the Republicans have just introduced a bill. Um, instead of three strikes, you're out, they're going to two strikes, you're out. Mandatory minimums. So that's right. And now they're going for mandatory minimums on gun crimes of 10 and 10 years mandatory minimum. Uh, 10 years for uh, possessing a gun is mandatory minimum for, as a, for a felon. 10 years for selling a gun to an, a felon. Um, and I, I, I read that yesterday and I was like, wow, this is exactly what Professor Clear is talking about. Yeah, this is so, uh, it's not as though we haven't been here before. Um, in the, in the early, uh, mid 70s, when everybody was trying to out tough each other, there was actually a... Um, there was a, you know, there was a, there has been a movement of one strike and you're out, you know, why would you, why should we wait for the second strike? But there was a, there was a, a legislator in Georgia who uh, proposed a, a version of no strikes and you're out, you know, uh, so if you are a kid who is at risk and uh, you get in trouble in school, we're going to put you in a training school until you're in your twenties. Uh, um, uh, so th there is this belief uh, and by the way, what's interesting is about these these gun proposals is that um, uh, the the selling of the gun to the felon starts with the selling of the gun to somebody who's not a felon, <laughs> and and that part we're not doing anything about, obviously. But um, uh, uh, any criminologist worth his salt, who is or her salt who uh, is asked, what do you want to do about violence? It doesn't start with get, you know, reduce the number of guns in, in, in the available. Um, it hasn't, uh, shouldn't receive any, uh, any consulting fee. Because in fact, if we could do, if we could cut back on the number of guns, violence would, uh, would drop precipitously. You know, it, we have to cut back significantly, of course, and that, that doesn't appear to be even a, uh, a, an idea that's on the table anywhere. Um, so, so these these proposals uh, to um, end crime by putting young people in prison for a lot longer that is a that's a, a remedy that we've tried before and Illinois is an interesting example because uh, just uh, a few years ago Illinois was a national leader in trying to to solve the problems that resulted from putting too many people in prison for too long. <laughs> and um, Illinois was the, was the uh, example that, that the reformers used to say, here's, you know, you can really do something about this problem. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's, it's sad to me that we just, 
I'm not sure if it's just pure political opportunism, if it's a certain political ideology that drives this, or if it's straight fear. But it's amazing to me how much we have just automatically reverted. Longer sentences, tougher sentences, we will, we will deter our way out of it. We've never deterred our way out of it before, but we're going to deter yeah. our way out of it now. You know, so I will say this. I'm a little optimistic because I think, um, I think some of this is just noise and it, uh, it, will, it will go away. Now, I, I could be wrong and it would be really tragic if I'm wrong and, and I've been wrong about this uh, kind of thing before. But um, I, I think the collective um, sort of, there, that the sentiment for being, being tougher, just generally tougher, was very widespread in the 70s. And the, um, it's not as widespread today. It's, I, you know, it's, it's a political opportunity. It's concentrated among a, in a particular political class, but it doesn't have the kind of legs, it, it, uh, the ubiquitous kind of, a, uh, you know, magical belief now that it, that it did then. And so I'm, I don't think it will go as far. And now, you know, so easily I could be wrong. And, uh, and I, I hope I'm not. Okay, so in, your, in the op-ed or article at the Crime Report, there's talk about, a, I think this was fascinating, a 50-year study of 50-year trend in crime rates nationally that selected states and found that imprisoned rates had little or nothing to do with trends in either overall crime or violent crime. My thing uh, yes. is, how is that possible? First of all, I know it is because I'm a criminologist, right? But um, to the public, they're all like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? Isn't the drop in crime nationally from the 90s all due to the fact that we just jacked up our incarceration rates? You seem to disagree with that. Yeah, so uh, this is work that we did. And and, we, and at, at Illinois was one of the places where the states, and we've looked at the specific relationship as well, we've done the same thing in Florida. And the findings are pretty consistent that um, that uh, there that incarceration rates going up and incarceration numbers going up are not associated with crime rates going down. What's driving crime rates is other social factors that are that are much that are not um, uh, amenable to uh, crime uh, incarceration rates. Uh, um, one of them, ironically, is inflation, and uh, uh, as inflation goes up, crime rates seem to go up. Uh, I, I won't say a whole lot about that, except to say that, you know, look at what's happening uh, right now. Uh, seems to confirm that hypothesis. Uh, the number of people uh, born um, uh, out of wedlock is uh, a predictor. I mean, there are, so, there are social factors that are predictors that have nothing to do. In fact, if you wanna talk about the number of people born out of wedlock, for example, uh, high incarceration rates increase those numbers, not, not decrease them. So, so uh, let me say over the over the long run, the number of, we've known for a long time the number of people in prison has a very weak association with the amount of crime, um, and uh, and our study confirms that. Thank you. I, I guarantee that ninety percent of the population, eighty percent of the population in America know in their fiber of their being that at least they think in their fiber of their being that that relationship is is one-to-one -one, that you incarcerations but it's the deterrent it's this idea that we're stuck on that deterrence equals crime reductions automatically and we just can't get beyond that i think one of the lessons of the uh, of the 
post, uh, um, you know, all the post police violence pr protests from a couple of years ago is that uh, tough, toughness and nastiness generates uh, not just fear, but it generates a reaction of, of, of disrespect. And, and uh, uh, so for example, if I threaten you, uh, you may say, look like you're going to, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, do what I'm wanting you to do. But the minute I turn my back, you're going to get me, right? Because I'm a threat to you. So this idea of building up a big criminal justice system that is so nasty that it's a threat all the time generates an, a, a response on, in communities where the criminal justice system is so ubiquitous of, of um, aggression back self-protective aggression back. And we know that in our personal lives. And so I don't know why we're so surprised that it happens as a cultural phenomenon as well. Threats don't get you to obey. What gets you to obey is incentives, you know, th that, and what gets you to obey is that it works out better for you obeying. Not that it, and uh, let me give, give you one number, for example. Um, our incarceration rate now is, uh, is, um, uh, if we cut the incarceration rate in half tomorrow, letting out half of the prison population and, and if everybody over the age of 55, everybody who has a, a, a medical illness, everybody who is in already within six months of being released anyway, and um, everybody who is in for a drug-related crime and everybody who's in for public order, relief. we let them all out, we, we reduce the prison population by 50%. If, if they get arrested at the same rate that people in general who are released from prison get arrested, which you would predict they would be, right? They would have the same, it would be right around 1% of all the arrests that occur in the country for a year. That's and then amazing. it would go back down, and then it would go back down to zero. So you could you could reduce the prison population by 50%, and you wouldn't see a crime wave. You wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't see a 1% increase in the number of arrests would be unnoticeable. The point is we have this uh, almost religious belief that if you lock up a lot of people, they won't be committing crimes and therefore we won't have those crimes. But when you put, when you say, look, people who go to prison when they get out, they do get involved in criminal activity again, that's just show you how you know, imp impotent prison is as a predictor, as a preventer of crime. And if you put the number that they do out, on the table, it's it's small in relation to the amount of all the crime that's going on out there. You know, it's just small. We don't need a big prison population to be safe. We need other kinds of things to be safe, um, and, but we don't need a big prison population to be safe. This brings me on to um, one of my last questions for you. And I'm going to use a term that's basically been uh, all the rage during COVID. What, do you, what degree do you think disinformation plays in this conversation. I'll, I'll give you an example. So bail reform in Cook County, which encompasses Chicago with Kim Fox and Judge Evans. So an alt-right publication, an alt-right political operation um, under the disguise as being journalists, but they're unnamed. It's anonymous in Chicago. Tracked 69 people last year that committed a gun, uh, uh, act of violence with a gun that were out on bail supposedly out on because of bail reform. The reality is they have, they have no evidence that some of those people wouldn't have gotten out anyways. They would have bailed themselves out or whatever, right? 
And all the rages, you got to end bail reform, the 69, 69, 69. So I had an alderman, a local politician on the podcast recently, who has been one of those voices on bail reform. And I'm like, okay, there were 3,561 shootings in Chicago in 2021. You're going after 69 of them. Why don't you go after and solve the other 3,500? And he didn't know what to say. I'm like, that That sounds so dangerous. There were 3,500 and almost 70 shootings. You're going after 70 of them. What are you talking about? Do you know how many people were out on bail reform? How many of thousands got released? No idea. Right. I mean, one of the problems here is that they're, that without intending to, we compare um, policies to a magical number of zero, as though somehow we're supposed to have zero amount of crime. That's the normal amount of crime. And anything that has an amount of crime that is not zero is a mistake, you know? And uh, uh, so uh, that's one issue. And then the other is we never look at um, all of the cases that don't end up uh, producing a criminal event. So, so uh, a lot has been made about bail reform and these um, risk assessment instruments that are used in, the, in some of the bail reform uh, work, um, the high risk cases that come out on those instruments uh, so uh, 15% of them uh, don't show up for trial, 15%. So if you say, we're going to keep all the high-risk cases in jail, not release them because they have a high rate of not showing up at the next hearing, you're keeping 85% in <laughs> to try to do something about the 15%. I mean, it's just um, uh, the, in, on the violence predictor, uh, these instruments, less than 1% are engaged in a violent crime. So you're keeping 99 point something in jail to prevent the 1%, this, we, and the 99% don't matter. Like the people who could have been released with no problem whatsoever, they, they, don't, they, they don't come into the calculation whatsoever because they never are a problem. It's only the problem cases and we are willing to create a lot of misery and do a lot of bad decisions. I mean, no one would bet a dollar on one chance out of a thousand winning a dollar. No one, <laughs> I mean, that'd be stupid. Right. So but we bet that all the time in the criminal justice system. And um, uh, the, the proper comparison is not against some idea that somehow there should have been no crime. But uh, if doing this policy compared to doing the alternative policy and uh, in, in the general case, when we've done these studies and we've looked at this, the, the additional criminal justice, uh, particularly around incarceration, generates um, uh, no benefit, but the cost has been enormous, especially the intergenerational cost. We now know, you know that uh, locking people up produces generational consequences. If you do it in, in, in communities and you have high rates in communities and you're destabilizing those communities, yet you have long-term implications for those places. That's why the protests occurred because these communities are, are uh, rising up against being over-policed. And the solution to that is not to police them more. Um, your point about this, we're expecting a zero impact from these, and that's what the goal should be, like on bail reform. Fa I never thought about it that way. That is a fascinating, fascinating point. Okay, last question. And this has been a big discussion in Chicago for several years. And I want your opinion studying how... Uh, all the years you have spent studying gun violence and violence. In Chicago, there's this push and has been for several years to consider gun possession a violent crime. 
unless punishing it as a violent crime. You're a, a, a very experienced criminologist. What are your thoughts on gun possession as a violent crime? And what would that impact be in the real world? So a lot of people own guns. <laughs> I mean, uh, I live in Montana. The other day I was in the grocery store and there was a guy with a, with a toddler in his grocery cart and a gun on his hip uh, doing grocery shopping. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I realize that this idea of gun possession as a violent crime is really around uh, some idea that people who shouldn't have, who don't have a legal right to have a gun, have a gun uh, in a moment when they're not supposed to have a gun. But in many places in the United States now, everybody has a right to have a gun at any time. So maybe if we, I will be, I'm, it's too facetious to say that guy, arrest that guy for committing a crime in, my, in the grocery store and arrest the guy who has a gun in his house for safety. He's got a, he's possessing a gun. Uh, that's a violent crime. I mean, uh, uh, that's just that, they don't mean that. They mean something else. They mean uh, people of certain profile who we believe shouldn't have a gun, have a gun. That's a violent crime. That's what they actually mean. And they should be honest about what they mean because they don't, they're not talking about getting other ordinary, you know, safe Americans to stop having guns. Um, I think there's a there's been floated uh, proposals to to uh, require gun training and then to tax guns. So I believe that the solution here is to is to if you want to own a gun, fine, but you have to pay a, a tax. You have to register your gun, and and you have to pay a tax into a fund that deals with the cost of gun violence. Gun violence is extremely expensive. And uh, the citizens who don't have guns are subsidizing the citizens who do have guns for all the gun crime that we have. So that the citizens who do have guns should pay for the, the cost of their own gun ownership. I'm actually gonna ask you one last question because it just came to my mind. I want your opinion on this tactic. In the beginning of 2014, the Chicago Police Department switched from pursuing people who used guns in violent crimes, discharged the weapon on a variety of crimes, stopped pursuing them and switched to pursuing gun possessors. So from that time, the number of gun possession arrests in Chicago have skyrocketed. However, the clearance of cases where someone uses a gun, discharges gun, the commission of a crime plummeted and continues to plummet. What do we talk <laughs> What do you think of that policing where we're going after possessors and not people actually using the weapon? Again, I, I live in Montana. There are so many people here who have guns. I don't understand. It's really not what you're saying. It is some other version of certain people who shouldn't have guns. We're going to, in certain situations, and we're going to go after them. Uh, uh, and there's certainly racial profiles there that, that are obvious. Um, and, uh, and community profiles that are obvious and neighborhood profiles that are obvious. And so, uh, um, look, if the goal is to get to have fewer guns, then let's make that the goal. Uh, let's, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I read uh, the New York Times columnists and, uh, and there's one of them who's conservative, who, who I quite enjoy reading, who believes we ought to uh, and get rid of the Second Amendment so that we can start having sensible gun policies. If you wanna have safer streets, getting guns off the streets is certainly one of the ways to do that. And if you wanna get guns off the streets, then having the ubiquitous availability of guns to anybody who wants it anytime they want it, uh, it has to be gotten rid of. So 
the police are, are have the right theory. Let's get the guns off the streets, but they have the wrong tool. Let's go after uh, young uh, men in certain neighborhoods. Um, I will say this uh, as well. You know, um, uh, the the uh, the pushback to the loosening up of gun uh, regulations is happening, uh, and the ironically the the law about abortion in Texas uh, paints the way. So uh, if you don't like, if you if uh, people in states like New Jersey and New York make it uh, 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 make it possible to sue people in Alabama and Texas who do certain kinds of gun activities that end up creating problems in New York, New Jersey, just like the Texas law does, I think it will begin to start to see a, a conversation about guns that is much more reasonable than the one we have now. I hope you're right. All right, Professor Todd Clare, thank you so, so much for jumping on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I once again want to thank Professor Clare for sitting down with me to discuss the very important issues of the day here. I found his take on the idea of critics of programs like bail reform, saying that the programs are only successful if they have zero negative effects. If you listen to critics of bail reform, they talk about how 60-some offenders and in 2021, they believe we're out on bail because of bail reform, although they can't prove it, and got arrested for a gun crime, so a gun violence crime, so that something where they shot someone or um, were in pos illegally possession of a gun or they murdered someone. Well, what numbers were we expecting? I know that's horrible, and we want any program, we want as little as violence as ever, as, as there can ever be, Right. Here's the problem. Every law you create has a neg negative impact to some degree. There's no way that you're going to release people out of bail, out of prison, and there's going to be no one that reoffends. It just isn't logical. It isn't reasonable. The question becomes, as Professor Clear talked about, whether or not you're going to punish thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people and make them wait in Cook County Jail, which has just got to be, I've taken a tour, it's got to be one of the worst places to spend any time in your life, to wait for trial because of the actions of 69 people. Now, the alt-right in Chicago will say, absolutely. Really? Does that make any sense? Listen, there are negative consequences to sitting in that jail. We know that. It breaks relationships with your family, your friends, jobs if you had them, people lose homes. And they lose homes, and they also lose the, the stuff in those homes quite often by sitting in jail six months, a year, two years, three years waiting for trial. So there's a balancing act here that's going on. Also, I want to make one other thing clear. When you hear the fact that 69 people out on bail reform, from bail reform, have committed violent acts with guns, turn my dog shaker collar in the background there, you have to understand that they have no evidence that those 69 people would have gotten out anyways. They're all because of bail reform. Can you prove definitively they wouldn't have gotten bail anyways? Bail amount, or if a bail was high, they would have, if they were gang affiliated or some uh, other illicit market affiliate, couldn't, they couldn't have gotten bail or one of their relatives wouldn't have posted a house or something to get them out. That reality 
That question is never asked. And the reality is they can't prove that. So people they say that are out on bail reform, they don't really have evidence that they wouldn't have been out anyways, right? But that to the alt-right in Chicago, that doesn't matter. So even the 69 number that they cite is watered down, would probably be watered down significantly if you had a real research done and looked at how many of those people would or would not have gotten out anyways, independent of bail reform. They got out as bail reform, but through other means, they would have gotten out anyways. They can't produce that number because the reality is for those people making these arguments, facts and evidence don't matter. They just know. Okay, on to our second and last segment for the show. It's an article from WGN Television News. It's a report. A closer look at the Chicago Police Department's gun recoveries. One of the dumbest stories you're ever going to run into. Basically, what they're saying is Superintendent Brown, the police department, is fudging numbers. So they say they, they, they confiscate 12,000 guns a year, let's say. I forgot what the exact number is in 21, but it's something close to that. Every year it breaks a record. What is happening here is a certain number of those guns are collected through buybacks, whether it's a buyback directly with the department or through some other like St. Sabinus Church or other um, non-governmental entity. What do you mean buyback? Well, they'll give you 50, 100 bucks, 200 bucks, 500 bucks, depending on the type of gun you bring in and turn in so they can be destroyed. This has been a practice in Chicago for decades. So if you're going to look at just the 2021 number, that's wrong, right? But that's journalism and not research. You have to look back at five or 10 or 15 years at numbers and see now. If you're saying, because this report makes it seem like only the numbers in 2021 are off this way. And it's because of the way Superintendent Brown is doing it. When in reality, this has been a practice for 40 years. I don't think Superintendent Brown has any clue what's going on here. He's so detached from the police department. He doesn't know. This is just an ongoing practice. So if, yes, the numbers are doctored in 2021, in 2020, in 2019, in 2005, in 1998, in 1988, in 1980, probably into the 70s and maybe even further back with buy-ins. This is just how it's going. This is how it's been done. So you have to some extent the same error factor across all those years because the same practice has been going on. This is not something they bring up at WGN television news. No, 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 because that would make the story one more thorough, and TV news is very hard to do that because of the time constraints they have, but it also makes it much less likely they would have done the story. If they can make 21 the outlier and they got Superintendent Brown, that's a story. It isn't a story. They've been doing this for 40 or 50 years, and it's the same error factor across all those years. Here's another little piece of information that I've gotten from knowing a number of police officers and have many of sources in the, high, the higher ups of the department through the years. Many of the guns they get back through the buy-ins are broken. They won't, they can't fire anymore. That's why they're being sold back. So you'll see pictures of rifles and stuff. They're not usable. Why would a kid turn in a rifle or anyone turn in a rifle for a hundred bucks when he can sell it on the street for 500 or a thousand dollars. Oh, it's broken and not fixable. Oh, that makes sense. 
So when, when you're getting these buy-ins and they feature Father Flager, um, I call him Rental Father, especially after the um, the whole debacle with the Lucas, the Star Wars Museum BS there. He's got this buyback and he's showing all these guns on the table, just like the CPD does. I doubt any of those guns work. A, a couple of them probably, but most of them probably don't. And the bigger you get, the less likely the chance that they work. They're most likely broken. Why would you trade a gun for 50 or 100 bucks when you can sell for two, three, five, 800, 1,000, 1,500, depending on the size on the street? You wouldn't do that. That doesn't make sense. So do a few people do it? Sure. Do the vast majority? Absolutely not. Which is why, yes, they're doing these buybacks, but they're buying back guns that are basically broken. And they're adding that to the number of confiscated guns. So look what we're doing, confiscating guns. It's just the whole thing's a scam, but WGN television, because it's a TV reporter who probably hasn't been in Chicago a long time and doesn't know criminal justice and didn't really reach out. All they, they, they do quote uh, former commander Mark Buslick, who at his retirement, I think, was in command of 19th District a couple of years ago when he retired. I don't I think this story was fed to WGN, to be honest with you. And that's fine. They still should do the story professionally, responsibly and thoroughly. And none of that was done here. It's hard to say, Brown, you could accuse Brown of fudging the numbers, just like all the other superintendents did it. But I doubt Brown had anything to do with this because they've been doing it the same way for 30, 40, 50 years. I doubt Brown has a clue. He's using the number because they're feeding it to him. The, the machinery of the department's feeding the numbers to him. But I doubt I don't think he fixed it any more than it's been fixed over the last decades. And it would have been interesting to talk to other superintendents. They're reachable. Go talk to McCarthy and Klein. Um, we and a few more like Rodriguez, go talk to them and see how they, if they fix the numbers, the way these numbers are being fixed, then you might have a story, but this is, um, really the problem with television news and cr criminal justice news, especially in Chicago, even when they think they have a story, they still don't know what the hell they're talking about. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. I really appreciate you tuning in. We're hopefully going to be back. We will be back next week, but um, we're going to try to decipher the what I'm calling the web report on Kim Fox. It's the report that special prosecutor or independent prosecutor, whatever they called him, his investigation into the Smollett affair in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. And I am not a fan of Dan Webb. He was U.S. attorney in Chicago during the Burge years, and he did nothing. And when Burge was finally arrested, for those who don't know who John Burge is, go look him up. When John Burge was finally prosecuted by the U.S. Attorney's Office under Patrick Fitzgerald's time, Patrick Fitzgerald at the press conference announcing the charges gets asked a question about why his predecessors hadn't taken Burge down years before. And he says, I have no idea. It was staring them basically in the face. And they asked him, why are you only getting him for lying in a uh, interrogatories as part of a lawsuit for like on perjury and not torture. He goes, he's an arch criminal basically. And my job is to get him for what I can get him for. And I got him for what I can, which is perjury. Why my predecessors didn't get him for torture and abuse. I have no idea. And Dan Webb is in that group. So that's a little context. We'll talk more about it next week, but that's a little context around Mr. Webb and how Mr. Webb doesn't really ever find 
misconduct of, around the elites and agencies. He, he investigated the law department for the city, said they didn't really do anything wrong. There was no pattern. And after he did it, they, there were more pattern incidents about withholding evidence. You got to take anything Dan Webbs with a, a grain, if not a pound, if not um, a house full of salt, because he's a tricky player in Chicago. Um, and certainly one that wasn't criminal justice-minded, reform-minded, um, and certainly didn't care about all the torture that was going on in the Chicago Police Department while he was U.S. Attorney's Office and benefiting from the torture also. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we will talk more about all of that next week. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the support. Talk to you next week.